Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although we'll hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Sean Lawrence Otto at Ramsey County Library, Roseville. Sean Otto is a science activist and two-time Minnesota Book Award winner. His nonfiction debut, Fool Me Twice, Fighting the Assault on Science in America in 2012, is a meticulously researched expose on the growing anti-science movement, a book that every voter in the country should read, according to MinPost. Otto's provocative 2016 follow-up, The War on Science, Who's Waging It, Why It Matters, and What We Can Do About It, is an essential work, a game-changer, and probably the most important book you'll read this year, Lodge Science Blogs. Otto is a co-founder of Science Debate, a grassroots movement dedicated to ensuring that candidates for public office address hot-button science and technology issues. He is a regular contributor to Huffington Post, Salon, Scientific American, and other outlets. In addition to his advocacy work, Sean Otto has penned a well-received novel, Sins of Our Fathers, in 2014, and wrote the screenplay for the Oscar-nominated film House of Sand and Fog. Otto makes use of slides in his club book discussion, which can be found at clubbook.org slash podcasts. And now, Sean Lawrence Otto. Thanks, everybody, for coming out tonight on this dark and cold, rainy night. Um, my name's Sean Otto, and I just wanted to take uh, a moment to thank Common Good Books and Aaron back there. Uh, if you like what you hear, if you don't have a copy already, I, if you picked one up from Common Good at the end of the program, I'd be happy to sign it for you. Wherever the people are well-informed, Thomas Jefferson wrote, they can be trusted with their own government. Uh, and this was a really important principle to Jefferson. Jefferson, uh, many people didn't, don't know this, but Jefferson was actually a scientist and a lawyer. Uh, he did a lot of uh, uh, measuring of the natural world. And in fact, his trinity of three greatest men, uh, as he called them, were Isaac Newton, Francis Bacon, and John Locke. And when he was sitting in that hot little rented room in, in Center City, Philadelphia, uh, writing the Declaration of Independence, the first draft, he really drew on these, the thinking of these three men uh, to find the greatest, most powerful argument that he could think of to convince the other Enlightenment nations to stay out of the Revolutionary War. Because his life really depended on it. All of the uh, 
the early signers, the founders' lives depended on it. So he synthesized their thinking. This was a time when science and law were both just kind of, had just somewhat recently emerged from religion. And the thinking had just uh, separated uh, about 50 or 60 years before. And he synthesized their thinking into this fundamental idea that underlies American democracy. That if anyone can discover the truth of something for him or herself using the tools of reason and science, then no king, no pope, and no wealthy lord is more entitled to govern than we are ourselves. That was the argument for democracy, this crowdsourced form of government. There was no divine right. The right existed in the people and in their ability to reason. It was a fundamental enlightenment argument based on science. But what happens now, some 240 years later, when science is exploding all around us and advanced technology is becoming less and less distinguishable from magic? Uh, both of these things, the cell phone and Harry Potter's broom are made by people cloistered away wearing long robes and uttering strange incantations. And both of them act somewhat mysteriously if you don't understand the underlying technology behind them. This moves science and technology out of the realm of know-how and into the realm of belief. It's become something that we either believe in or we don't believe in, somewhat at our convenience, depending on what the topic is. At that moment, we become vulnerable to disinformation campaigns because science is not something that we break down step by step at our kitchen table. Uh, it's not something that is laid bare to us. It is something that is mysterious and therefore it can be argued with. Now, does anybody want to take a stab at what these blue lines represent? Those blue lines are Facebook connections. Uh, but they might as well be connections between scientists and engineers working in labs around the globe. The internet has caused a phase change, not only in the quantity of scientists that are able to work together, independent of geography and time, but in the quality of the research that they are doing. We are seeing an explosion of new knowledge, new information in a wide variety of fields, all of which have strong political components that we have, to a greater or lesser extent, become stuck on in our conversation. In the next 20 to 30 years, we'll produce as much new knowledge as we have since the beginning of the scientific revolution. And if you think back on some of the politically contentious issues that we're still dealing with today, like evolution, teaching evolution in the classroom, or like whether or not climate change is a hoax, these types of issues represent just a small fraction of what we may be dealing with in the next 20 to 30 years. So the question emerges, are the people still well enough informed to be trusted with their own government? I like that. The two signs work well together, I think. Um, but it's important to note that that guy there is making important decisions about all those complex science and tech issues that 
impact our lives in tremendous ways. I mean, we hear on the news today about the hearings, congressional hearings with Facebook, Google, and Twitter, and about the impact that Russia may have had uh, through Facebook in influencing the election with the expenditure of something minuscule, like maybe $100,000. So we see more and more power being concentrated in the hands of individuals, but also of nation-state actors through science and technology. And all of these issues have that same power ratio component where the wielder of that power can influence the world in vast ways. Judging from Congress whether or not the people are well enough informed, the answer is probably not. There they all are hard at work on their laptops. And of the 535 members uh, of the U.S. Congress, how many do you guys suppose have a professional background in science? Zero. Two. Two? Any other guesses? You guys are cynics. A <laughs> hundred. It's eleven. It's eleven. Your cynicism is somewhat justified. Less than two percent have a professional background in science. There's one microbiologist, a physicist, a chemist, and eight engineers. By contrast, how many lawyers do you suppose there are? <laughs> it's uh, actually that's sadly not that far off. 211 or 40% of con Congress are lawyers. And this is an important point to make, an important distinction, because in the day and age where science is dominating all these big issues that are affecting every aspect of life on the planet and every policy we're debating, lawyers approach a problem of fact in a very different way than a scientist. Lawyers will start with a conclusion that they want to achieve. They start with the goal. They will then look at the evidence, all the evidence, if they're a good lawyer, in order to do discovery to prepare arguments to support their side and to oppose the other side. Then they will rely on the judge, jury, uh, or in the case of Congress, the body as a whole, to determine who's made the most convincing argument and therefore is likely more close to the truth. Setting a goal like that is the very opposite of what a scientist will do. That's a huge mistake if you're a scientist because it introduces something uh, called uh, bias, really, confirmation bias in your thinking. A good scientist is going to pose a question and then they are going to test it with a risky test that could either confirm or deny what their prediction is. And that gives them information that they can then use. And they'll look at all of the information that they build up on either side of the argument and then make a conclusion about what it seems that nature is indicating. That's proven to be actually a very powerful way of asking questions and solving problems. But it's little wonder that we are not seeing much of that in Congress and it's becoming problematic when science and tech influence so many issues. So into this vast void of lack of information in Congress steps industry. Um, the, Robert Brule at Drexel University um, published a paper about a year ago now. Uh, he had done some research on the 
movement uh, behind, the funders behind the climate denial movement, or the climate counterculture, I think is what he called it. And as it turns out, these organizations, um, largely funded by fossil fuel companies, uh, have annual budgets of a little bit north of $900 million. Now, not all of that is spent on propaganda and climate denial, but a significant portion of it is. So when you think about public dialogue, that is a major factor in what people are thinking about these days. Big industry is influencing a lot of the different commodity industries and the conversation around them. And it's always about limiting regulation. Regulation is bad. Regulation is uh, something that is portrayed as limiting people, burdensome regulation, onerous regulation, when in fact regulation is there to protect people. Uh, so these are the industries generally that we see propaganda campaigns, well-funded propaganda campaigns in some cases coming from. And I'm going to give you some tools to recognize them shortly. But what we're seeing through the process of the Trump administration now is really the regulatory capture of the executive branch. Uh, these individuals here that are, uh, have been appointed really to run agencies that they diametrically oppose. Uh, Rex Tillerson was the CEO of ExxonMobil and as the Secretary of State he's deprioritized uh, climate change discussions at the State Department. Rick Perry who didn't know, uh, uh, demonstrated on national TV that he didn't understand the scientific method and is a climate denier, is now the head of the Department of Energy. Over on the bottom left is Sam Clovis, uh, who we dealt with quite a bit, getting Donald Trump to answer the uh, 2016 science debate questions. Sam is uh, up to be the chief scientist at the USDA, even though he has no professional background in science. And Scott Pruitt, as the head of the EPA, he was an attorney and, uh, that, that sued the EPA dozens of times uh, and is now uh, appointing subheads that are really working to dismantle most of the regulations that the EPA is there to enforce. But it's not just happening at the presidential level, it's also happening at the congressional level. This is Representative John Shimkus in a hearing held on energy and climate uh, and I want you to pay close attention to the gilded scientific report he's got. The earth will end only when God declares it's time to be over. Uh, man will not destroy this earth. This earth will not be destroyed by a flood. Um, and I appreciate having panelists here who are men of faith and we can get into the theological discourse of, of that position. But I do believe God's word is infallible unchanging, perfect. Uh, two other issues, Mr. Chairman. Today we have about 388 parts per million in the atmosphere. I think in the age of the dinosaurs where we had most flora and fauna, we were probably at 4,000 parts per million. There is a theological debate that this is a carbon star plant. Now, I don't know about you guys. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, our family read the Bible around the dinner table bit by bit. It took about a year. And uh, I don't recall anything about carbon in the Bible. Um, this type of thinking is probably something that would have Thomas Jefferson completely up in arms uh, because he was 
insistent on the idea of basing public policy on evidence. This is a theocratic approach that is much more based on received knowledge than it is based on evidence built up from science. But it's not just at the congressional level, it's happening in state legislatures as well. Here, North Carolina banned sea level rise. This was a law that forbade local governments from making any zoning or planning decisions using the evidence from science that suggested that sea level in that particular area along their coast would rise by about 39 inches over the next century. They, uh, these local officials could only use what the state approved number was, which was eight inches. This makes a huge difference if you are building a road and spending billions of dollars. Your roadbed height, you'd probably want it to be above the ocean. Or if you're permitting buildings, commercial or residential, you probably want to know how high the ocean's going to be during those buildings' lifespan. This is a move really more reminiscent of Mao's China to me, where the central government is providing alternative facts that people have to adhere to instead of actually letting them base things on independent evidence. It's also happening in Minnesota in mining, in copper nickel mining in particular. Uh, the idea of um, the amount of sulfate that can be in waters, in wild rice waters. This is a pretty well established science dating back to the 1940s, uh, and it had held accurate until 2011 uh, when, based on uh, pushing from Iron Range legislators uh, who are under the influence of, of the mining industry, uh, raised the sulfate standard from 10 parts per million to 50, uh, way over what the science said. The new anti-science talking point that you'll see from pro-copper mining people is very similar to the anti-science talking point that you'll see from climate change as a hoax people, talking about how we have to rely on sound science, co-opting the idea of science. You'll hear then uh, industry lobbyists and politicians saying if the science is safe, we should build it. Or if the experts determine that a permit can be issued for this mine, then the governor should not stand in the way of that. That's really similar to the same uh, type of thinking in climate denial, saying that the science isn't settled yet. Both of those above comments imply that the science isn't settled when in fact it is. So what's driving all of this? The first thing to know is that science is never partisan, but science is always political. And the reason that I say that is that politics really is not just a left-right continuum between progressives and conservatives. It also has a top-down component between authoritarians and anti-authoritarians. And science is decidedly at the anti-authoritarian end of that vertical continuum. It says, I'm not going to take what you say on faith. Show me the evidence, and I'll judge for myself whether or not what you say is true. And that enlightenment spirit is also the spirit that underlies democracy, saying we're not going to require people to think a certain way. They can judge for themselves, and we'll have a vote. A scientist is neither conservative nor progressive, and at the same time, both. A good scientist has to account for all the knowledge that has come before, 
a conservative trait and incorporate it into their thinking or they could be embarrassed and that would damage their career. But a scientist also has to be open to the cutting edge of new ideas. They have to be progressive in their thinking as well or they risk career stagnation, another form of career damage. So science, science's political nature is because once in a while evidence is developed that is quickly commercialized, produces new products, industries are built up based on that, and science continues, and new science is developed that says, wait a minute, there are some unintended consequences from this technology that we're now using, and that sets up a conflict between vested interests and what the evidence says. Science is always political because it doesn't take sides. So, Right now, I wanted to kind of give you a sense of the industry talking points and how to recognize a propaganda campaign. The first component when you see a propaganda campaign is there's always a high or hysterical emotional tone. Um, whipping up emotions is really an important part of manipulating people. And when you do that, then you can create an us versus them messaging and you can appeal to tribalism. It's almost like the Vikings versus the Packers or it's about two different tribes of chimps. And when you divide people like that, you can then manipulate them by making the other side into the bad guys and increasing group belonging and therefore group buy-in to your preferred perspective. At the same time, propagandists do do-good investments in community visibility. They sponsor hockey teams and tournaments, for instance, and they scapegoat and mock opponents. They used something called the third party technique. This was developed uh, in the early days of public relations uh, by the father of public relations actually. And it's a method of having a PR firm that is pushing a propaganda campaign hide behind another party and get them to be the face of the campaign so that people don't know that industry is really pushing this. There will almost always be cherry picking of facts and fake experts and ad hominem or personal attacks. You'll see science and denial emerge from that and fighting science with motivated or false science. And finally, sudden breakthroughs that discredit known science. That all leads into the largest overall strategy, which is creating uncertainties, taking advantage of the perception of science uh, to uh, that, that no knowledge is ever certain because of um, the way that science progresses, when in fact science does zero closer and closer and closer in on knowledge. Scientists will never say that something is, for, is, is, for, is certainly uh, a fact, but they will say that the evidence strongly suggests that it is. So taking advantage of that, PR campaigns develop specific strategies that I'd like to take you through, which are pretty interesting. Here in 1968, the American Petroleum Institute commissioned Stanford Research Institute to really look at this issue of whether or not fossil fuels were causing climate change. And they concluded pretty accurately, actually, that we'd see uh, by the year 2000, we'd see some uh, dramatic climate change begin. And in fact, that is what we wound up seeing. In 1998, though, in the run-up to the Kyoto Protocol, uh, the petroleum industry had changed considerably in their approach. 
Uh, instead, they commissioned the Global Climate Science Communications Action Plan to scuttle the Kyoto Protocol, but also to take control of the public dialogue. And the strategy was to emphasize the uncertainties in science and to make the mainstream view appear to be out of touch with reality. So whenever you hear the science isn't settled yet, or we don't really know, or I'm not a scientist, that all stems back from this particular propaganda strategy. So the way that this plays out in real life is pretty fascinating. Here's a quick ser a series of uh, little clips that'll explain exactly how, with a relatively small investment, uh, the Koch brothers and other industry players were able to kill the cap and trade bill. I ask this Congress to send me legislation that places a market-based cap on carbon pollution and drives the production of more renewable energy in America. So that was Obama's very first address to Congress, and he asked for that. A few months later, actually, Congress complied. The House passed it with eight Republican votes. Now, eight Republicans involved in that, and it, was, and it passed the House, and the Senate was controlled by Democrats. You had a Democratic president who had asked for it. Seems like we are home run, right, on, on cap and trade. So what happened? Americans for Prosperity got active. I'm Tim Phillips, president of Americans for Prosperity. We're here at Billings, Montana. We certainly did TV ads, radio ads, uh, social media. Uh, we did rallies, events. We uh, launched something we call Hot Air. And we're sending the message to Senator Baucus and Senator Tester to vote no on this job-killing, tax-increasing cap-and-trade. We cut a hot air balloon, put a banner on the side of it that said uh, cap and trade means higher taxes, lost jobs, less freedom. And we were all over the country doing events and, and stirring up grassroots uh, anger and frustration, concern. And trade will slow the economy and cost American jobs. So this is really an example of a full-bore propaganda campaign at work. Americans for Prosperity is uh, largely funded by the Koch brothers. Uh, just to give you a sense of its size, it is four times the size, staff-wise, of the uh, United States Republican Party. So they carry a big sway in the media. They have a large media budget. And they began this onslaught in the media by really beginning to soften up public opinion against cap and trade. Uh, but at the same time, they needed to have members of Congress hear from supposed experts in their committees. Right response to the non-problem of global warming, for a slide please, is to have the courage to do nothing. But the fear of catastrophic man-made global warming is mistaken. This demonstration shows that the oft-repeated mantra in Washington, so the science is settled, is not true at all. Does anyone know what the Cato Institute was originally incorporated as? the David H. Koch Foundation. So now we have members of Congress seeing it on their media, seeing it in their home states, perhaps hearing about it from constituents and seeing it in their committees. The idea is to surround them with points of evidence that they can use to draw a logical conclusion, just the logical conclusion that you want them to draw. So the next thing to do is to go influence the influencers in their communities, the people who make the campaign donations. Oh, man, there hasn't been any perceptible trend. In the last 10 years, there hasn't been a warning. 
Well, we don't know why that is, but one doesn't see any warming in the observations. So Fred Singer is a nice grandfatherly seeming guy uh, and sounds very trustworthy. We don't know why. We haven't seen any warming in the observations, except that we have. He doesn't mention that part. He's working to fool people with statistics just like he did when he was associated with campaigns that said that smoking cigarettes doesn't cause cancer. Here, uh, Gavin Schmidt explains exactly what Singer is doing. You could take the entire climate history that we have in the instrumental record and you could find cooling trends uh, every 10 years. Cooling trends between 1958 and 1969, 1969 and 1978, 1978 and 1987, and so on. Scientists have a name for this. They call it going down the up escalator. You pick the endpoints, and you could find any particular year as part of a cooling year. But actually, the whole thing is if you look at all of the data, it's quite clear that the warming is continuing. So this is a great example of cherry picking, of picking the endpoints that you want to make your argument to get to the goal that you set originally. But in fact, it steers your thinking in the wrong direction. And in, and in fact, it steers the thinking of very intelligent people in that uh, group of physicians that Fred was think, uh, speaking to in the wrong direction as well, which is exactly what it's intended to do. Next came the most pernicious part of this campaign. Uh, the Republicans, like Bob Inglis, that uh, voted for this, were targeted in primary battles. Now, why in the world would somebody like the Koch brothers target Republicans? That's supposedly the party that is there for fossil fuels right now, right? Especially if the Democrats were controlling the Senate. Why target House Republicans? It was because this was an off-year election and Obama had pushed the vote, uh, not really pushed the vote, he had deprioritized climate change to try and get health care through, the ACA, and the vote on climate change was, was pushed back past the midterm elections. So that gave Americans for Prosperity the opportunity to create the perception that there was a groundswell against doing anything about climate with cap and trade. Now, how many times has an incumbent who isn't in prison or facing a prison sentence lost his own primary by 79 to 21 percent? This was overwhelming. But what's happened is the, the smile on your face suggests, man, we won one. Of course we won one. We're on the record. And our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, are going to read this climate hearing in the lame duck congress was Inglis's last. Your child is sick. 98 doctors say treat him this way. Two say no, this other is the way to go. I'll go with the two. You're taking a big risk for those kids. It was a very key factor in 10 to 15 congressional districts in the 2010 election where strong supporters of climate change legislation I ended up being defeated. And there was nothing like a loss in an election to promote fear in the survivors. And that's exactly what happened in the United States Congress. And it's gotten worse since then. That was also the year, you might recall, that the Supreme Court made the Citizens United decision. And at this point now, it's gotten so bad that Congress is really locked in dysfunction. 
which is why you see uh, people trying to do, deal with climate now at the state level. Um, it's industry only has to threaten to primary you in a, in a primary battle, and you will probably fall in line. And that's what we're seeing at the federal level. So why can't the press expose all of this? Can't we count on them to talk about what's real, to guide people properly? The biggest problem that we're seeing in the press is for two generations, members of the press, members of the media have been taught that there is no such thing as objectivity. Here it is in the New Reporter Guidelines. Now this was intended to, as an admonishment over assuming that you are objective and that you don't bring your own biases to your reporting and you should be aware of those. But it's become a, by, per, probably by simplistic reporters, it's become a mantra that says that there is no such thing as objectivity and we're not going to take any position on anything. Here we also hear it repeated by Linda Ellerby on the speaking circuit, there's no such thing as objectivity. Even Nick Gillespie, the editor-in-chief of Reason.com, an objectivist publication, is saying there's no such thing as objectivity. But there is such a thing as objectivity. It doesn't matter what your gender or your sexual orientation or your political party or your age or any other factor that might bias your outlook, if you stick a ruler in that bowl to measure how much rain has fallen, you will get the same reading as I will. In fact, that's the whole point of science, is to strip what we know away from all those biases, those subjective points of view. So that's where the media gets into trouble. Journalists, because they assume that there is no such thing as objectivity, will then tend to say there's always two sides to every story. Bob says two plus two is four, Julie says it's six, the controversy rages. Maybe Julie has a legitimate reason for her perspective. The scientist, by contrast, will say most times one side is objectively wrong. Here we can see clearly that Bob is right, two plus two does equal four. A politician might make a compromise. And there's Congress in a nutshell. The problem with this type of reporting is by putting a climate scientist, say, or an evolutionary biologist in one half of the screen talking about the evidence that's been built up through billions of measurements done by tens of thousands of scientists doing hundreds of thousands of experiments. They are synopsizing all of that and representing all of that in one half the screen and then me, or, or in one half of the story. And then because there's no such thing as objectivity and you have to have another side to balance things out, you have somebody with a differing opinion on the other side. And when you treat those two things as if they're equivalent, you wind up elevating extreme voices in the public dialogue and extreme partisanship. It's something scientists call false balance. And the danger is that it moves us further and further away from the reality of two plus two is four, where we can make sound decisions as a people based on evidence, further and further towards away from reality and really into the thrall of special interests. It gives them a major way to influence public debate. Why does this matter? 
Well, we get back to Jefferson's idea of democracy. He imagined it as a virtuous circle where there was some problem, some governance issue that we had to solve. And so what would we do? We would elect people and we would turn to this educated and informed mass of the people, as he called them. And they, in turn, would commission scientific research, like he did with the Lewis and Clark expedition, to build knowledge. Then we would debate the best public policy based on that knowledge. That was the idea it was supposed to, how it was supposed to work. But when science grows so complex that it becomes a matter of belief, vested interests are able to move in and provide alternative theories to children and propaganda to adults, and the educated and informed mass of the people is moved out of the conversation. Then, instead of commissioning scientific research, we turn to authority and ideology for knowledge. Science is moved out of the circle. Thus, the march for science. Then, instead of turning to or basing, uh, debating the best public policy based on that knowledge, we do like Representative Shimkus did. We base it on dogma. What is that a recipe for? It's a recipe to turn democracy into authoritarianism. And that's why we see a lot of emergent authoritarianism in our society today, because of this dividing point around what is real and what is not real that is being pivoted by big industry around the questions of science. So what can we do about it? The first thing that we can do is we can demand better news. David Gregory is one of the worst offenders of the idea of false balance. Um, he often puts people like Bill Nye uh, and Marsha Blackburn together because it makes good TV. But what it does is it creates that false equivalency between knowledge and industry-funded ideology. So if you see a programming like that, reach out to the station's ombudsman or to the news director and complain. I was on a news show in the Twin Cities um, and talking to a reporter uh, and it was clear that he understood what climate change was and he wanted to talk about it. Uh, and then when we got on the show, he acted like it was really in doubt and that there was a considerable question ab about it. Then when we got back off the air, I asked him, so what was that all about? You seem like you completely changed when we were on the air. And he said, well, if I don't do that, our station manager is going to get tons of letters of complaint from people and our owners are going to worry that we're going to lose ad revenue, so I have to walk a careful line. If you can push back when you see that kind of thing happening, you can provide the back pressure needed that will convince station managers to stand up to the pressure from the other side and to say, no, the point of journalism is to hold the powerful accountable to the evidence. That's our job. But that takes courage. If you're a churchgoer, you can also ask for better sermons. There's no reason why our houses of worship can't be houses of moral and ethical reflection that are not just embracing polarized ideas on either the left or the right, but that are really honestly exploring the moral and ethical components of these emergent science issues and helping people parse them in a way that reduces partisanship and the breakdown in society instead of emphasizing it. 
teaching science civics, if any of you are public school teachers, um, this is a really important concept. Uh, some people think that uh, Republicans, for instance, with climate denial are just simply uneducated. But in fact, as you'll see from the chart, as college education goes up, belief in climate change goes down. What could be causing this counterintuitive result? It's not that people need more education. It's that once they get more education, they feel more entitled to think critically, but they've obviously been given not necessarily the full set of tools to apply when they think critically. They feel more entitled to question authority. Well, if you're questioning authority, where are you turning to make your conclusions? If you're not turning to evidence, you're turning to ideology, and that means these days political parties. The same thing happens on the left. Uh, as liberal educated organic food shoppers are more likely to be vaccine refusers. This is changing post Michelle Bachman uh, and uh, anti-government libertarians are even starting to uh, reject vaccines as government intrusion in their bodies. As a science teacher, one of the things that you can think about is uh, doing science, teaching science civics and teaching science debates. Take advantage of these high concern notions uh, like climate change or vaccines or evolution or Facebook and the Russians and have a debate in your class about, you know, split your class in half and have one half representing the science side and the other half representing the charismatic, persuasive, ideological side. But don't tell them who's going to argue which side until the day of. That way they have to research both sides and they become familiar with the different ways of thinking that an evidence-based argument is different from a persuasive, ideologically driven argument. Demanding accountability for corporate fraud is also very important. There's a New York Attorney General announcing the beginning of his investigation and lawsuit of ExxonMobil over defrauding shareholders about their knowledge of climate change many years ago. These things don't just happen. In fact, I had made a suggestion to the Minnesota Attorney General to do the same thing as discussions about how to get this done were happening among climate scientists. She declined where the New York Attorney General did take it up. But it was public pressure and pressure from scientists that gave him the courage and the standing uh, in his thinking to take it up. Finally, do something. Do something yourself. ScienceDebate.org was born out of six individuals being frustrated that none of the candidates for president seemed to have any knowledge of science and weren't talking about any of the big issues that were starting to affect every aspect of our lives and life on the planet. So we put up this website called sciencedebate.org. We reached out to a few scientists and engineers that we knew and it went viral. And within a few weeks we had 38,000 scientists and engineers and members of Congress from both parties, ranging from you know, people like John Podesta on the left and Newt Gingrich on the right, all signing on to support this call. And what did it do? It made a big impact in our public debate as journalists who aren't comfortable talking about science suddenly had a frame 
that they could talk about it in a political way. And that gave scientists and commentators entree to begin talking about the level of knowledge and the level of ideology and the thinking of the candidates. Obviously, it didn't prevent what has happened since with the election of Donald Trump, but it was very important in the dialogue and arguably things may have been considerably worse had we not done that. President Obama did not go into office being particularly pro-science. It was very difficult to get him to engage with us at first. Uh, these people uh, became friends in that process. And actually, finally, once he did begin to engage with us on the campaign trail, he realized how central that it really was to any president's presidency now. And those people became central appointees in his administration. John Holdren became his presidential science advisor. Nobel laureate Stephen Chu uh, ran the Department of Energy. Jane Lutchenko, former AAAS president, became the head of NOAA. Uh, Harold Varmus ran the uh, American Cancer Institute, and uh, Minnesotan Marsha McNutt, uh, now the president of the National Academy of Sciences, was the head of the U.S. Geological Survey. All of that happened, and that transformation in his perspective happened because of efforts like ours pushing for conversation about science in the public dialogue. We live in a day and age when these issues are presenting an increasing existential challenge to democracy. So I invite you to continue to think about them and to continue to push media to do a much better job of holding politicians accountable to the evidence. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we return to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Sean Otto and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what resources are available to help when discussing climate change with climate change deniers. Yeah, well, uh, on, on the question of climate change, there's an excellent site called skepticalscience.com. Skeptical Science. And that breaks down all the most popular um, industry-funded denial talking points and debunks them. So there's lots of ammo there. But what I found to be um, the most effective thing is something that I learned from Eugenie Scott, who used to run the National Center for Science Education. And she was kind of on the forefront of the teaching evolution in the classroom versus teaching creationism battle for 30 years. And she uh, taught me about bridging language and not trying to be uh, too argumentative, but to reach for language that um, found some common ground and that seemed to give people room to hold their belief without being embarrassed, but then questioning them about that. What do they base that belief on? Why do they feel that way? And continuing to probe, usually it will evaporate and it will turn into nothing. They won't be able to articulate why they believe that. And that gives you an opportunity to say, okay, well, I understand why you believe that. <laughs> Here's why I feel this way. And then you can give them some evidence and show a reasoned argument for why you have concluded what you have concluded. And the contrast between those and the fact that you're not judging them, 
but that you've invited them to uh, share and they haven't been able to because 99% of the time they won't be able to, uh, helps open up the conversation. It helps cause some cognitive dissonance and that's what you have to do before people can begin to be open to hearing anything different. It's a famous kind of teaching or a classic teaching technique too, right? You want to disrupt somebody's worldview. Elevate their level of concern. Well, the level of concern is certainly being elevated by um, the political salience of these topics right now. So you have that built in, but then once you've elevated their level of concern, you want to create cognitive dissonance and show them that reality isn't exactly how they're perceiving it. And at that point, then they're open to exploration. So certain similar strategy in a more gentler way in conversation. This next question is about the intersection of religion and science. Should they be at odds with each other? I often say that science is to religion like bicycles are to plumbing. Intersect? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they don't intersect. And to, to put them on a continuum uh, where they battle each other um, is really a fallacy uh, because one is about only considering what the evidence shows and the other is about having faith in when there's no evidence. And those different approaches are not necessarily in conflict with one another. Um, it's true that there are a lot of biological and physical scientists who are atheists, but there are also a lot that are religious. Um, and it's really kind of a continuum of faith. So uh, that's, uh, I think, a really important perspective to maintain, and I congratulate you for exploring both uh, sides of that bridge in your work. This audience member notes that one of the biggest factors preventing a widespread acceptance of climate change is commodification. Why is that? Yeah, well, it's an important question, but it's a question that is kind of whose results are uh, in the future. And when you are focused on quarterly returns, it becomes, it becomes difficult to think about the future and future investments. Um, but there is considerable investment going on in research in other countries now. And the science enterprise is really a global enterprise now. It's no longer dependent on the American economy. So I do think that progress will continue. Uh, I just don't know whether America will continue to lead it. It was our investment in science and technology post-World War II that really drove the economic development that we've seen since then. Science and technology are responsible for over 60% of the economic activities since World War II. So it's a huge, huge transformer of economic growth. So from an economic argument perspective, we certainly do need to be investing in it. And we're not anymore to the degree that we should. It's become a political football. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering about Otto's support system for writing and what his process looks like. Um, writing is something, no matter uh, at what stage in your professional career you are, from somebody that's dabbling in it to somebody that's making their living, it's still something that kind of gets pushed into the corners and you have to keep pulling it out of the corners because there's probably 70, 80% of your job is spent on doing talks like this or on dealing with agents or contracts or flying somewhere or um, doing research or something like all these things that have nothing to do with writing really but that kind of surround the world. So you, 
you need to, my advice is you need to, um, you just need to stay with it and realize that it will always be kind of relegated to that, that role and you need to keep dragging it back into the center. When I begin to write, I try to write from a passionate perspective. I think if I'm writing nonfiction, I think, what upsets me about this? And for me anyway, that gets me to explore, because of my personality I suppose, that gets me to explore all sides of it and really to dig in. Um, the, when writing fiction, the most important thing, whether it's movies or novels, uh, is to set out to write badly. And do that almost on purpose. Write it through, write through a first draft, not caring how bad it is, embracing the badness of it. Because most people will stop the second they begin when it's not great right out of the chute. And they won't go further. But you need to write that bad draft in order to have the, the piece of rock covered with mud and moss that you've dragged into your studio that you can now start sculpting. At least then you'll have something to work with because 90% of it is shaping and rewriting and shaping and rewriting. So if you're thinking about writing fiction, that's my best advice is to write badly. <laughs> All right? Thank you. Thanks for coming. That wraps up our Ramsey County Library Roseville event with Sean Otto. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Heather Ann Thompson at Dakota County Library, Wentworth. Pulitzer Prize winning historian and prison reform advocate Heather Ann Thompson is the author behind Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Rebellion of 1971 and its legacy, the first definitive account of our country's largest and most notorious prison rebellion. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who made Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.